0: All right. Sorry, folks. We're having, for the first time in a while, we're having technical difficulties because it's 2020. Um, but uh, anyway, Chubba, we were just talking about, um, we were talking about uh, Victor Wong and James Hong. Um, like You kind of forget like how many movies Victor Wong was in. And as mentioned before, James Hong has been in every movie. I think he yeah. might be in the shorts that you're working on.
1: I think he is actually Um, he's going to be coming by for a cameo and he has 440 IMDB credits as an actor that is insane I I, believe me I am on IMDB quite often and Kurt Russell has got like 102 and that is Kurt Russell's career can you imagine 400 acting jobs like yeah, I mean, just even the, the logistics of that, I, I'm, like, terrified. Like, I can't even imagine, like, what he was... Mornings, like, you gotta go to one thing. Afternoon, it's another thing. And that's two credits. So like, he must have did this forever.
0: It does help that he's... What is he, like, 90-something? 91? And, like, he yeah. still has been in stuff recently.
1: Yeah, Jesus. He was born in 1929.
0: Yeah. So, like, his acting career is literally... Like, like I think he was in something in the 1950s. So his acting career, or several things in the 1950s, so his acting career is like 70 years old. Yeah. So it does help to space things out a little bit. But, I mean, even then, you're still talking about, like, even if you're talking like 65, 70 years, you're still talking, what is that? It's like six projects a year.
1: Yeah, I mean, his first one... Seven, seven he, years, something like that. Yeah, he's got a, his first like credited thing on IMDb is 1954 as like a, it's like basically like a, like a stock actor or whatever. And, and man, dude, like just to think like to be acting for that long. I mean, that's, that's just like, that's an insane career. That's a career I would love to have. Oh, for sure. And like,
0: yeah, no, sorry. Go ahead. Continue.
1: Oh, no, no, sorry. I was just saying, I would have loved to have that career. And, um, believe me, man, like, can you imagine like you're working in Hollywood, you're doing what you love, you're making money. And you're, like, one of these dudes, like, you can go to the grocery store. You know what I'm saying? You don't have, like, the paparazzi, like, following right. you around all the time and stuff like that. You can go get drunk on a Monday, and, hey, that's that's totally cool because that's your fucking lifestyle, and I would love to have that.
0: He's he's also one of those characters that, like, if he does, characters, people, character actors, that when he goes someplace, paparazzi doesn't bother him, but, like, you and I would be like, holy shit, James Hahn. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, he's beloved by, like, everybody.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I would immediately ask him about Wayne's world too. I'd be like, dude, (laughs) just tell me everything.
0: (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, so do you have any, uh, do you have any trivia from this time period? Any little like factoids that that are kind of interesting to you from this era of, of, as you called it, his accessible films, uh, you know, during like during his prime here.
1: Okay. So Hayden Christensen's acting debut was in the mouth of madness. No shit. Yeah. Which I, I did not know that I found that as an IMDb factoid. And I got to say at least Hayden Christian got to work with John Carpenter because Lord only knows it's probably all downhill from there. (laughs) So, I I mean,
0: yeah. Yeah. I feel like he gets a bit of a bad rap. Um, Some of it's warranted, but like I've seen him in other things where I'm like, he's pretty decent actually. Um, But I, you know what? Sometimes it's really hard for actors to act against nothing. And Mm -hmm. that was his experience. Um, in the Star Wars prequels was just green screens everywhere and like no one around him
1: right and that was like you could tell the difference in green screen acting from the Star Wars movies to now and it's just improved dramatically yeah. you yeah. know what I'm saying like some of those Marvel guys like I can just can you just imagine like breaking out into tears in a very big emotional scene in front of a big giant square green square <laughs> like, green square and
0: someone wearing tennis balls all over their body <laughs>
1: I know it's like that is, I mean how could people not say that that's not acting you, you know yeah. it may not it may not be like Academy Award winning acting but it's not I Easy. yeah it's definitely not easy that's for sure and let me ask you what have you seen of Hayden Christensen that's not too bad my my experience with him is very limited
0: there's um there's one that it's interesting it feels like it it would be better as like a short film um okay. it's like disappearing on 7th street okay I think that's the name of it hold on let me I've pulling up his IMDB right real quickly but it's basically like um this kind of like supernatural horror movie um, okay, where, like, all of the daylight is just, like, disappearing. Interesting. And people are, like, disappearing into the shadows.
1: Yeah, I, I like, wow, I, I didn't Van- even know about that. Like,
0: vanishing on 7th Street.
1: Okay, gotcha. Yeah, like, it's it's just so interesting to hear the phrase, like, Hayden Christensen and dude was in something that wasn't that bad. Like, I, <laughs> right. the, 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 hearing those words is just something you don't hear all that often. And uh, I remember him being in this movie called Shattered Glass, which was like definitely nowhere near like the, what a star Wars Mm, movie is, is like about like a writer or something. And like, I remember like looking at this and it it was just so hard not to see Anakin Skywalker, you know what I'm saying? And I, I, he just there's something about it that I just haven't been able to shake that just yet. But who knows, man? Like Jackie Earl, Jackie Earl Haley had an amazing career renaissance years and years and years after after being in the Bad News Bears and basically doing nothing. So maybe he's one of these guys. That, the, the same thing, the same thing with the Chernobyl guy. Yeah, <laughs> you go from disaster
0: movie. Who, to yeah, exactly. Exactly. And who knows? I mean, like, yeah, that, that's the one about the guy that fabricated like his books or whatever. Right. Yes. Yeah yeah
1: definitely yeah I, I watched it like like basically like one time like around the time that um, Revenge of the Sith came out It was like oh shit Hayden Christensen's in another movie maybe this is right
0: right right I gotcha um yeah so that's man I did, I did not I did not know that this one here's a little factoid that it's kind of like it's kind of sad and kind of surprising at least at some level um Starman is the only movie of Carpenters to receive an Academy Award nomination
1: really yeah for what? To, what category?
0: Uh, best actor.
1: No shit, yeah. Jeff Jeff Bridges. Yep. Wow. Wow. And did he win for that?
0: No, he did not. I, I okay. When was it, like 84, 85. Yeah, he didn't win. But only the only one to. Res- I mean, like not even like effects work, story, music comp, like none of those things. Yeah, ever. not think- even one time.
1: You would think that they would at least give him like one of those consolation academy, like Brad right. Pitt's Best Supporting Actor award he just won, right, you know, exactly. like, <laughs> something like that. But that's interesting, and that also just it kind of does speak volumes to how the academy and like these, you know, hardcore like filmy types how they view horror and those in the the horror um, and those in the horror exactly. like field and stuff, which is and, changing. And, which is changing. It's
0: changing, and and it, and also like a good point. Starman is not a horror movie.
1: That's true. Yeah, so that's, that's also that's, very true. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a
0: sci-fi movie. It's not. It's a sci-fi romance. It's not a horror movie. That's probably why it got nominated. Had that. Had Starman been some like gruesome horror movie with Jeff, with Jeff Bridges, I don't know, killing people, <laughs> like it definitely would not have won an Academy Award or been nominated for an Academy Award.
1: Right. Right. And like, yeah, that that in and out of itself, they were like, oh, okay, so John Carpenter has got something that's not horror. Let's nominate it. We can finally nominate something. Right. Like this.
0: Right. All right, let's move on to his last films here. Um, this is starting with uh, Escape from L.A., Vampires, Ghosts of Mars, and The Ward. Full disclosure, I have never seen The Ward. I, I was going to tell you that earlier. I have not seen that it's, either. It's got a heck of a cast, though. Um, really? Uh, Amber Heard, Lindsay Fonseca, Daniel Panabaker, and Jared Harris.
1: Very interesting cast. Yeah. Wow. Like maybe Amber Heard is uh, decent in it. Hopefully, <laughs> uh,
0: who, no- who knows? It's just it has an interesting cast of like people that I mean, obviously Amber Heard and Jared Harris, right now are, are quite famous. Uh, but like Danielle Panabaker's been in, like a, she's on one of those teen TV shows for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. Same with Lindsay Fonseca did like some TV show for a long time too. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but uh, but anyway, uh, last films here. What what stands out uh, about this period of his work? Do you have a name for it? By the way.
1: I do have a name okay, for cool. it. Yes, go for it. I'm calling this one the Popcorn Era, and mm. the reason that I'm calling it this is, um, okay, now the earlier Carpenter stuff, and believe me, this is just me, but like, it, maybe it's because he was younger. He didn't. He was. He didn't have, or he was trying to prove himself. You know, he had something to prove. It, it really seemed like those scripts were being written like for him. You yes. know. And these movies, ugh, like, they seem to be written for audiences of their times. And I remember, like, um, specifically with, like, Escape from L.A., I don't necessarily remember there being a large demand for Escape from L.A. And believe me, as a kid, like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I was
0: excited for Escape from L.A. Oh, like, I, I saw just... that baby in the theaters.
1: Oh, you did? Yep. Okay. I... I I can't remember if I did. I know for sure we rented it. I just I'm totally blanking on the theater, so which means I probably didn't see it in there. But I was I was totally excited for it and like in the like mid-late 90s this was like action movie heyday and stuff like that. You know, I mean this was like Last Action Hero, you had True Lies, you had an overabundance of these like, you know, big kind of like explosiony action movies. Mm-hmm. So I do think that Escape from LA was him writing for the audience of the times when it comes to vampires vampires came out in 98 i believe correct and and in this time period um from the mid to late 90s this was this like just really lost time for vampires and this is when you had like Bram Stoker's or the Francis Ford Coppola Bram Stoker's Dracula you had like from Dust Till Dawn there was this vampires there was kind of this big push to make vampires something more than just like the Bela Lugosi rendition of Dracula. Mm-hmm. But during this time period, none of these projects even, even hit the, the tip of the iceberg or hold a candle to Bela Lugosi's rendition of, of Dracula. It's just, it's amazing how at least like, I, I feel that something from like the thirties and the forties, this early incarnation of this character is still it, like it's still just what people think about like when i think vampires i don't think of you know the the john carpenter vampires i don't i don't think of francis ford coppola's version of dracula so the vampire subgenre of horror was very very lost at this time and it kind of resulted in like what i feel is kind of like a lost vampire movie and then it goes to Mars, dude, fucking Ice Cube is in this thing. So this is definitely writing for the, um, the, our high school movie going, you know, teenagers and stuff like that. And then that crowd. So this is something that, um, like, are these works accessible? Like they're, they're definitely like accessible, but they're accessible for like all the wrong reasons, I guess, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. not like. So, like, while as Big Trouble in Little China and Christine and everything, these were accessible, um, you know, almost movies that were, like, designed to be big and everything. I think that these movies are accessible, but they're just accessible in the way that they're not as good as his earlier works. You know, they're not as John Carpentery as maybe some of his earlier works are.
0: Yeah, I got you on that. Um, that, that does make sense. would Would you be shocked to know, though, that... Um, Escape from L.A. was a decision by he and Kurt Russell to do another one. They wanted to do it. Wow. Um, Would it also shock you to to learn that Kurt Russell wrote the last third of the movie?
1: That shocks me even more than what you just said. (laughs) Because his
0: only writing credit is he's one of the writers on Escape from L.A. Um, And Ghosts of Mars was supposed to be Escape from Mars.
1: Okay. Now, that sort of doesn't surprise me as much of the as the other two because i heard that um predator was basically rocky versus aliens at one point in time so yeah. reworking escape from insert something here into mars now that definitely does seem like something that's very 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 john carpentery but yeah like man i did not know about that like I, honestly escape from la to me feels like Hey studio, um, we are, Hey John Carpenter. It's the studio calling. We got to you want to do another escape from LA or, or escape from New York movie? We'll throw you a bunch of money. That's what it feels like. To right, me. I'm really surprised that he learned that he wanted to do that.
0: I, I, I do. There is a, um, I do remember this specifically in some like interview that he gave like several years later about escape from LA that the production house that handled all the effects had mm-hmm. never done computer based CGI before. Okay, so there's a reason why this. Not that it would have made this movie like that much better, but I remember how like schlocky and terrible it looked. Um, mm-hmm. Like it, 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 Escape from L.A. is just not. Other than Snake Plissken and the and con, the concept being the same as Escape from New York, mm-hmm. visually right. it's just a fucking nightmare. And yeah. that's part of the reason. Like, could you like, could you imagine handing your all these are like these effects ideas off to of someone and you, and like they've never done it before. Like how can yeah. they know what to do?
1: I know that like, that doesn't even really seem like it's a good move from like a hiring standpoint, <laughs> but maybe they, maybe they cut them a deal or something. Maybe they thought they, they were going to not be in over their head or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I do remember like this the effects and everything like looking like really wonky. And even though we're talking years into the future, it just seemed like Escape from New York was like a much better production.
0: Yes, yes, 100%. Yeah,
1: dude, I remember this, like the thing that sticks out in my mind from Escape from LA is that scene where he's playing basketball and he's got to make all the shots and stuff and i remember seeing this like making of escape from la that may have just like been like a 15 minute special on like hbo or showtime or something mm-hmm. and it, it's snake Plissken playing basketball and it just i don't know there's something about it that just really looked off it, to me like, really
0: <laughs> off and i feel like that's one of the scenes that kurt russell wrote in so like <laughs> yeah. it's okay but uh from that he made all of those shots in a row
1: yeah that was the th- that was the thing that was i thought was at least the most impressive part of the behind the scenes was he made all of those shots with an with the
0: patch on mind. you. <laughs>
1: yeah. And it just shows you that Kurt Russell is a fucking stud. I mean, he was like a big, a good baseball player. Or yeah, He's, a, like he's he, a minor league baseball player. Yeah. And his son is a, uh, uh, well, I don't he, know. If he he did play hockey
0: before he hurt his back.
1: Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. Is he
0: Canadian? That's a good question.
1: I don't know. It's like, cause, Cause like with him like um and his son having the the hockey connection, it just sound it just seems like such a Canadian thing to do. Like you know I I, I don't know, but that's a, uh that's a he's sh-
0: American, but he's from uh, he's from Massachusetts. So like it's one twenty your okay. hockey hotbeds.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That totally makes a lot of sense. That. But yeah, I mean that just proves what a fucking stud that he is. Where. You know, just like an athlete, an actor, like, Kurt Russell's just a goddamn man, dude. Like, you can't, like, if somebody were to draw the man and draw Kurt Russell, I'd agree with it.
0: Yeah. If you were, you know what, if you were to read, have you have you seen Wyatt Russell in anything, perchance? Uh,
1: no, I have not.
0: Okay. um, I I do recommend um, either checking out Lodge 49, um, TV show that he's in. Okay. Uh, Overlord is a lot of fun, period. Um, okay. Okay. And gosh, he's in something he's in a couple episodes, or just he's just in one episode of Black Mirror, too. But um, if they were to redo Big Trouble in Little China and they were to kind of stay faithful to the idea of it, his mm-hmm. son should just play Jack Burton. Dude,
1: I could see that. I could definitely see that. He does have the look and I, I have seen him in this Ingrid Goes West movie. I, okay. I, I So that, that I at least have seen him in something. But yeah, I could totally see that, too. And he's a young stud as well, man. Look at this fucking guy.
0: But he's not, but you know, he's not like, like when I heard that The Rock was in talks for this remake, I'm like, well, that's incorrect for Jack Burton. Like that, that doesn't make sense. Having, having someone who is, you know, like ruggedly handsome, but not covered in like fucking muscles. That makes more sense
1: right yeah the whole like when you have somebody that's like a larger than life personality for the rock like it doesn't seem like a uh, like the appropriate role for him in the big trouble little china reboot right.
0: anyway to these movies <laughs> back to these <laughs> movies. uh so so besides so is there anything besides like the, the kind of feeling because i believe me i do get that feeling too like these being sort of like cash grab studio driven sort of movies is there anything else that stands out uh, about these last four films here and again, I I've never seen the ward, and I vaguely remember. I know I've seen Ghosts of Mars, and I vaguely remember it. <laughs> Actually, that's yeah. probably a bad it's probably a bad sign, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, no, it's um yeah. There's nothing like other than some of the like the the popcorny feel. Um, it kind of seems like there were like things that like they tried but didn't really work. You know, like there it's this it does kind of give off the vibe that like intentions were good but execution was horrible. So mm-hmm. like. Um, like even like the plot of vampires with just like this this group of vampire hunters and everything like that and the, the relationship with the church and stuff like that like that's a solid idea mm-hmm. but it's just execution is off so right. like so, so that's something that I'd have to say would would be standing out to me was just like the, the popcorny element it's um just execution stuff you know it's not like even those these are John Carpenter movies it just doesn't have the same package as some of his earlier stuff did
0: yeah. Now, I, I, I agree. I, I feel like you know, to use a sports metaphor, this feels like a this feels like a pitcher, an old pitcher who just doesn't have their fastball anymore. It's just I got you. The, the best isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um even when they're reaching back to try to find it and, and try to throw it as hard as they can, it just it's not there. And right. when when your best ideas aren't there anymore, you gotta adapt. And it doesn't feel like any of these movies tried anything new. To right. sort of, like, you know, to get around the fact that, like, you know, we're just doing another escape from New York, but we're setting it in L.A. Like, there's nothing, it, it plays out almost exactly the same. I mean, it does play yeah. out exactly the same with some tweaks here and there. Um, you know, Ghost of Mars, again, I vaguely, I know I've seen it, but it, it can't be, it, the ideas can't be well executed. And there couldn't have been a great idea there anyway if I literally can't remember what happened in a movie that I know I've seen before. Yeah, the only
1: thing I, that comes to my mind is just Natasha Henstridge in another, like, kind of alien context. Yes. <laughs> like, that's kind of the only thing that it's, that I, I remember.
0: It's kind of, I'll tell you what, Ghost of Mars, could you imagine trying to get Natasha Henstridge, Ice Cube, Jason Statham, Clea Duvall, and Pam Green in the same movie now?
1: Oh, it'd be impossible. Like, Jason Statham alone, that, that's a that's a pretty hefty ticket. Natasha right. Henstridge still looks great, but, like, you know, it's... But Natasha Henstridge, like
0: by the way, would still do this. Would, oh, Would yeah. do the sequel to this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Dude, she hasn't done anything since the whole 10 yards. I guarantee you that they're, they're waiting. She's waiting on a call for something space themed. Like, hey, guys, like, you know, I was naked in species. I could be in a space themed movie again. Yeah,
0: it, yeah exactly. Um, actually, actually, Entridge has done some stuff just under the radar stuff.
1: Yeah, 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 of course. Like, I, I mean, she's got it real under the radar be, yeah, it's got to be like one of these things where like um she might be cast as like the one and only recognizable face in certain real specific genre mm-hmm. pieces and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like just to have the species girl there, you know, right. kind of the the same way that like um Gretchen Mall is like one of the only recognizable faces on Night Flyers, you know, just to get somebody in
0: there. Right, exactly. Um yeah, so I, I agree with yeah, absolutely. There's there's that there's and when we talk about the like commonalities with this movie Um, don't all of these feel, especially, especially escape from LA and and vampires, don't they feel very rushed? That's something else that like, it felt like they're on some kind of deadline and they had to finish these movies.
1: Yeah. It feels rushed. It does definitely kind of feel forced. Like even like escape from LA, it just, it almost kind of feels like, Hey, you guys, we need to make a movie. Like, what should we make? And it's like, Oh, okay. let's just take snake and let's throw him in Los Angeles. You know? Mm And when you do that kind of stuff, like you're kind of skipping out on some of the necessary thought exercises and thought processes in actually crafting like a like a le- legitimate story and everything like that. You know, people rely on, they think that things that work the first time around are going to work the second time around mm-hmm. and they never ever do. They maybe get stuck in like the use of um, like certain dialogue tropes, like the dialogue doesn't age with the audience and stuff like that. So it'll be like snake saying those, you know, those one liners and things like that, where in all reality, Pulp Fiction just dropped four years prior to that and dialogue on on the screen was almost revolutionized in two years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it does kind of definitely seem like somebody is cutting corners to rush to a final product.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What else? Uh, any, anything else that kind of binds these movies together in your, in your eyes? I,
1: I think that there's even like a certain level of like these films being incomplete. And I know that mm-hmm. like in all reality, they tell their own version of like a full story and stuff like that. But when you, when you watch like Escape from LA, it just seems like something is missing. Like yeah. even when you watch like Vampires, like it does seem like there could be something else in this movie that makes it a really, really good movie. And when they, and then probably in like a combination of what you and I are saying, where in the rushed process, they probably like forgot about things or they didn't think things through like entirely and stuff like that, which definitely gives off a certain kind of incompletest um, aura amongst the mm-hmm. product.
0: I know, I know vampires is, um, it, vampires got, I want to say like two thirds of its budget cut while they were filming.
1: No shit.
0: So that like necessitated a lot of rewrites and <laughs> right. kind of working with like with what they had, not to excuse it. Cause I don't think it would have been like, it wouldn't have been that much better anyway. But, right. but could you imagine like, could you imagine the movie you're working on? You're thinking you're going to get $10 million and they're like, no, you get four.
1: Yeah, I know that, that right there, like that is a big fucking deal and stuff like that. And like, as I have just basically dipped my toes into the world of like the production element of this stuff and believe me, I'm not in any way, shape or form saying I know anything about it, but what if it, what I know about the, what it takes to get a space in this town for like a couple of days, Mm -hmm a 4 million or 6 million dollar like budget slash whatever it is that is a significant thing that calls for rewrites that calls for almost a completely redrafting of the entire concept Mm -hmm. and everything. And you can just imagine like you had allotted X amount of dollars to make the sky look red all the time and then that money's gone. And then all of a sudden locations get changed and because locations get changed, topics of conversation get changed, character arts get changed because you know, it may have been reliant on somebody going to a temple and touching the magical crystal, which now they can't do. (laughs) So that completely reshapes everything,
0: you know? Yep. Exa- exactly. It's, it's one of those, like, I think we've, we've talked about it before. Like I'm always, I always think that like sort of, um, creating like certain bottlenecks really like mm-hmm. helps the creative process, yes. but not when you're already in the middle of doing it.
1: No, <laughs> it doesn't help the creative yeah. process at yeah. all. That no, just
0: stymies you, it and kills it.
1: No, you need to like set, You're right. You need to set limitations in the creative process and your boundaries beforehand, but to basically set your own boundaries and have somebody else decide where your boundaries are going to be, that's a, that's like a risk of immense proportions. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How about uh, how about do you have any or, or do any of these like do you think of any of these as like a favorite of yours from this point in time?
1: I would have to and this is reliant a lot on nostalgia and everything it would have to be escape from LA and I I remember being so psyched up for this movie and stuff and like my god we get to see Snake again and Snake's a badass and I'd probably say that out of all of them it, it, Escape from L.A. might end up aging the best out of this particular mm-hmm. category because there's no way in hell that I'm watching James Woods on screen again and, like, even Ghost of Mars for some reason. I don't think time is going to treat that movie well. So um, so I would comfortably say that Escape from L.A. is my favorite of this time period.
0: I, I didn't want to piggyback off you because that is that is really my answer as well because, like, there's nothing else to pick, basically. Right. But, but I will say this. If Vampires had its full budget, And Mm -hmm. if it had a better cast, I think this could be like his late, late term uh, cult classic. I gotcha. There's enough of an idea there that with better execution, a little more time and someone who isn't James Woods and someone who isn't Daniel, I don't really mind Daniel Baldwin, but like just that, I don't know. I I feel like like if you recast those two in particular, that you, you could have something else here.
1: Yeah, of course, dude. Yeah, definitely. And like, James Woods, like he had limitations as an actor long before. I mean, this guy is barely a leading guy. You oh, know what barely, I'm saying? The yes. fact that he he made it into a movie like this is something that he should get down on his knees and prank his, his liberal to God agents that they got him this movie but um yeah daniel baldwin is i don't know it's just when it comes to the baldwins you're basically looking at alec you know like steven's cool for a couple of really weird stupid lines and moments every now and then but alec baldwin's like the great baldwin and when you see these lesser baldwins in these movies and stuff like that it's it's noticeable you yeah. know it's really like you could have just really picked almost anybody else da- to do it
0: D- daniel baldwin is not the number two in a movie, or probably no. well, probably in this case like the number three because I think um, I can't remember who plays the main vampire. Um, is like Thomas Thomas Ian Griffith. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thomas Ian Griffith. Yep. Um, he's your number two uh, behind James Woods. But like in terms of like our heroes, Daniel Baldwin would be like in a better movie. Daniel Baldwin would be like the fourth hero.
1: Yeah. He would be like the the heavier set, funny kind of comic yep. relief guy and yep. stuff like that. You know, we first meet him. He's, um, you know, James Woods is calling all the vampire hunters together. And he's the guy in a trailer who's banging a stripper and drinking tequila at nine o'clock right. in the morning. Like, that's him. And then sure. he gets
0: killed early on as part of the reason why we're going so hard at the vampires later.
1: Yes, exactly. Yes, definitely. Okay. Anyway.
0: Anyway, so, yeah, I, I just I wanted to vampires is one of those movies. I feel like, man, if this. if if this just had just some tweaks and some better casting, a little better writing, it could be like a cult classic kind of movie that I sit and watch when I'm bored. And it happens to be on TNT and I'm bored on a Saturday morning.
1: Yeah. 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 Of course. Like just like a bad in a good way or like a kind of movie. Exactly. Um, I want
0: to, I want to share my favorite piece of trivia here because this is fucking amazing. Um, go for it. Chema. (laughs) So, this is this is uh it has to do with Escape from LA. Okay. A scene from the film was played in open court during a murder trial in 2001. Actor stuntman Wayne Montan Wayne Montanio, who briefly appeared in the film, was on trial for the 1997 murder of his younger brother. An eyewitness who placed Wayne at the scene of the crime identified him via playback of the scene that he was in.
1: That's absolutely amazing that is absolutely amazing that is like one of those stories where like you hear about people getting arrested while watching cops and stuff mm-hmm. like that is hands down like one of those kind of stories and stuff like that, like that i just recognize this guy
0: from a movie it was a fucking <laughs> the this terrible this otherwise kind of trash movie helped convict. maybe that's that's this movie's legacy escape from la's legacy it helped convict someone of murder <laughs>
1: I know. Can you imagine having a movie being remembered for that? Like not the actual movie itself, but the fact that it had somebody convicted. That's unbelievable. I did not. I did not know that.
0: That is nuts. I, I, my eyeballs about popped out of my head when I read that. I was like, holy shit.
1: Yeah, that's great. That is fucking great.
0: Anyway, do you have have any little tidbits from this uh, period?
1: Yes, I do have one, and this does go back to uh, Natasha Natasha Henstridge, because the only reason that she ended up in the Ghost from Mars is she replaced Courtney Love, who was originally cast wow. as the lead role, and um, the reason that she was recast—this has to be the most Courtney Love thing ever—is that she was at the last minute. Um, she was Courtney Love was replaced because at the time her boyfriend who is this guy named Jim Babber I think he was some kind of like executive mm. of some kind um, his ex-wife Leslie Babber ran over Courtney Love's foot with her car in a Volvo and like Courtney Love couldn't move or whatever she had this like cast on her foot so they had to recast her and goes to Mars because of this incident and like if you were to somehow throw cocaine into the mixture I' kind of believe that that could be the best story from courtney loves life period
0: <laughs> oh my god that that is a fucking courtney love thing yeah and now i'm trying to i'm trying to figure out if ghosts of mars would have been better or worse without with courtney love in it
1: i'm thinking worse i don't like there's not really much stuff that courtney love makes better including whole so i mean there's i don't know like she had she had her time with um with the people versus Larry, Larry Flint Flint. Are not gonna yeah. be very good in that movie but that's not asking that much of her you know to, to play that particular character play yourself yeah play yourself basically yeah <laughs> like hey you want to like you just want to come be yourself for a couple days you die in a bathtub by the way mm. and um but yeah so I cannot imagine her making anything that much better. I, I, just, just me.
0: I especially can't imagine her doing something that's action oriented. Oh, not at all. Whereas, that, like, whereas we know Natasha Hentrich, Natasha Hentrich can do that.
1: Oh yeah, dude. Natasha Henshridge is like you know like like a built like you know like you know kind of like filled out in the body and not just in the the chest, but like she's got a more fuller frame. Courtney Love just looks like a like a stick figure, you know. There's nothing like she's heroin chic to the to the extreme. You yeah, know? you're not going to put that in an action. Yeah, that's, movie.
0: that. The, you just on the surface that's strange, but I, I I still love that. I still love that like a car running over her is the reason why we didn't get a, a, a Courtney Love led and 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 Hentridge is the the first name on this mm-hmm. on the cast list, so that would have been Courtney right. Love's name otherwise. But of course, I she know. got ran over by a car, so. <laughs> Yep, totally corny love for you right there. <laughs> I think we answered the "what in the hell happened here?" question. It's just a, it really just seems like it's a combination of things yeah, that that I, led to. I don't want to say the downfall, but like the this this period of just garbage before before his last movie in 2010.
1: Yeah, like I, I heard, and I, re- I mean, I read this on IMDb that like he was really burnt out after Ghost of Mars, and he almost oh, quit sure. the the industry and stuff. So, I mean, if, if for you to get burnt out on like on stuff like filmmaking, like something you love, especially like John Carpenter, you have been doing it for all this time. I mean, you just like that whole burning out process. Didn't just start at ghost of Mars. It probably started no. years earlier and everything just kind of taking its toll. You're right. It's the pitcher that can't throw the pass anymore. Yeah. You know, it's just the time has passed.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, am I will say this it's, you know, he in later, in later interviews, especially I heard him, I can't remember what podcast I heard him on, Um, but he does seem like, I don't want to say like a bitter old man, but like he is definitely bitter about, when we get to like these Pantheon works here in a second, he's bitter about a lot of the way a lot of these movies were received when they came out and how long it fucking took people to Mm -hmm. realize that like he's a working genius. Like he's, uh, like he, um, the reason why he didn't helm, he was going to helm H2O in 98 um, and the reason why he didn't helm that is because he wanted like ten million dollars um, to film it, and he basically said like that's penance for all the fucking movies you guys trashed over the years of mine.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know something, like I'm not gonna lie, like I kind of believe that he has every single right to feel like sure. that. I mean, and especially like you know coming from like the the creative side of things myself, and I'm putting that in quotes, is that like I'm not gonna lie, like. When you do put out your own work and somebody doesn't like it, you know, it does kind of sting you, you know, it's not the greatest writers and the people that um, can easily let stuff wash over them. It's going to get them in some way, shape or form. And like, I don't know, the whole like just delayed discovering of genius I would just constantly be wondering, like, why didn't you guys see this twenty years ago, or why didn't you mm-hmm. see it ten years ago, or five, or like, or that's uh, twenty-five years ago, or thirty years ago? You know what I'm saying? Why right. did it take this long?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what? I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get yeah, it. You're, you, yeah. you, you, you put. And we talked about how, like how much of his, you know, his blood, sweat, and tears he puts into his movies, comparative to not that. Oh, not that. Like the directors are lazy. It's a shit ton of work. Right. Um But like you know, like we said before, like Marty Scorsese isn't editing scoring composing uh and doing effects work on his movies john carpenter is and Mm -hmm. that just doing that for you know the 35 plus years and not being appreciated for what you're doing that has to burn you out That just has to yeah
1: oh yeah i mean i would i would feel everything that he's feeling i i would go into them and be like yeah you want me to come back pay me 20 million dollars whatever the hell it is and stuff i mean there's you can't help but like at some point in time, like humanity and emotions and everything like that kick in. And I I, I would feel the exact same thing.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But let's move on to it here. Um, let's move on. I'm saving the best for last. His, his Pantheon works. Um, the movies that are, are, I mean, unless you have some disagreement here. Um, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, Escape from New York, The Thing, and They Live. Hands down, his best works. Yeah, I'm not even
1: going to be, I can't even begin to argue with that. I don't know how anybody could. Yeah, yeah th- those are by far and away his biggest and best stuff, for sure. Uh,
0: you, you know, from critical hits to, you know, obviously well, most of these are, are actually fairly good critical hits. But like, you know, Halloween, like his his first blockbuster, Assault on Precinct 13, uh, a blockbuster in its own right, um, mm-hmm. Escape from New York, um, you know, a critical success, if not, you know, not necessarily commercial success. And then The Thing and They Live took a long time to be appreciated, but once they were, um, these are sort of like your poster children, if you will, for um, for what a cult classic, for what a cult movie actually is, The Thing and They Live. Um, so you you run the gamut here. Again, you run the gamut of, uh, of where his movies kind of fall, um, mm-hmm. which is, maybe that's another defining feature of his work. It's just eclectic on every level, possibly. Yeah. Um, but, so for you you know taking these as a whole or maybe just anything like particular in one of these movies that you can kind of cite as like is something that like elevates these movies above the rest of his work which is obviously as we've gone through for the most part very good
1: okay dude this was the question that i struggled with the most on the outline Same here. Here's, <laughs> here here's what i got for you and i'm going to try to put this these movies take the risks that the other movies do not take and um, just to kind of give you some examples I kind of just run off a couple things from the list is that uh, Assault on Precinct 13, this is like, you know, brutality on cops and everything mm-hmm. like that. This is an aggressive as shit, like bad guys coming for the law enforcement type movie and stuff. And in the 70s, this is a pretty far stretch is like, as um, usually like law enforcement figures are, it's either like, you know, the drunk detective or something like that, but it's never the cops taking this kind of beating like on a screen, you know, which I, which I think at least like, I can't think of anything like that that came out prior to assault on. And that being a risk that paid off Halloween, a six year old child brutally, brutally kills his sister in the first like 10 minutes of the movie. yeah, And there's, yeah. And there's this shot of, um, basically like you you're seeing like um michael myers through the mask so like the the screen has got the two eye holes cut out and everything Mm -hmm. and you're in this until his parents take the mask off of him and there's just this shot of a six-year-old child with like a bloody knife and in this specifically creepy done like little kids clown costume that it just it sticks with you man like no one's no one was having six-year-old kids murder their sisters and stuff like that on screen in the 1970s so once again that was another risk that paid off big time the idea of turning new york into the this prison island or whatever like a very highbrow writing concept that at the time like i felt was like was a big time risk and stuff like that to put a to put an action movie in like that kind of like you know sci-fi but cool kind of setting another risk that paid off uh the thing basically condensing a horror movie down to this isolated spot where you're only in like um, a handful of locations and stuff like that, the entire movie and the um just getting to the creature, like at the end of the first act and stuff like that, big time risk. Like that'd been something that had been saved for the third act. And um, just like the way that that story is structured was a, was a huge time risk. And they live just the overall plot line of they live and somehow turning that into a movie. I, I just think it's just so unique and so Carpenter-esque and, it's, and specifically Carpenter-esque that that is just like taking chances on a concept and while, it, you know, later on paid off and stuff like that. So I just think that these movies, they take these risks and they take these chances that his earlier um, catalog did not do. I
0: I wholeheartedly agree with that, sort of, that these movies are, um, these movies are like, you know, I mean, originally... I don't want to say original um necessarily cuz I mean the thing itself is a remake. Um Halloween is a slasher movie. But the way that he presents these concepts is so original uh, is is original it, it just it like it, they these things even though they are a part of something else the way that he presented them is so original and so unique that you're right like when was the last time you saw a 6-year-old slash up his sister um in a movie. That does that happen would that happen in a movie now? Yes. I think we would yeah. see something oh. equally graphic and shocking now, but in, in granted, it, graphic by 1978 standards, not by our standards, but graphic at the time. Yeah, um, of course, You wouldn't have seen anything like that. Just thinking about how we we talked about like how graphic for you know a movie from 1960 Psycho was, um, and that is really that we see worse shit on TV every day now. Um mm-hmm. in, in in things that aren't even like that violent, we see things that are more violent than what happened in Psycho. But in, in the nineteen seventies, like when you had Halloween, you had the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, nothing like that existed yet. Right. That, exactly. Those were raw and original and real. Like that that was just like a a foot in a, a foot in direction that no one had like dared step before. Um when you when you talked about assault on Precinct 13, this type of this sort of type of like this sort of type of, I'll call it a Western because that's Mm -hmm. really what assault and precinct 13 is. It's a Western Uh, I mentioned before. It's a, it's, it's a direct homage to the movie Rio Bravo, but like those movies were shot. They're they're shot and they're presented in a way that makes the, you know, the cowboys that are surrounded or outnumbered makes them heroic. There wasn't, this wasn't like heroism. This was survival. That it's, it's, it presented in a very much darker way that, you know like I mean the cops are teaming up with the criminals that are held in their jails in their jail right. cells because it's not about like who's a good person or who's a bad person. it's about let's get the fuck out of this night alive. And that's mm-hmm. all that mattered. Um, we'd never really seen that before. Like th- we'd never seen the way that like you know the highbrow concept and like the the way that the the satire was presented and the, and the commentary presented in, in escape from New York was never like as su- simultaneously overt. Hey, Manhattan, Manhattan Island in New York City, which, is especially in the 1970s and 80s, quite violent, um, mm-hmm. very violent to be in New York City at this point in time. We've turned it into a giant prison. It's it's so big and obvious, but it's also not that right. obvious that like, oh, by the way, this is a commentary on our cities and how fucking terrible they are right now. How how the drug war and how things are fueling just out of control violence. Um, and then when you get to something like when you get to something like the thing. Um, the i think the originality is in i think the originality really lies in like the effects work and how well i mean for me it's the effects work how wonderful how wonderfully gruesome everything was and how detailed everything was and how they let you visually enjoy the gruesomeness that we mm-hmm. in a lot of movies that creature would have been like in shadow a lot um you wouldn't have seen like the the scene where the i can't remember the the doctor's name where he's trying to resuscitate uh it turns out to be the thing and he gets his arms chewed off and then it gets like violently killed and everyone gets set on fire and the head crawls away like you get to sit there and enjoy this gruesomeness and there were not a lot of horror sci-fi movies that really let you sit with that kind of like brutality that like the scene like the star of the scene was the effects work and all the blood that was, those were the Mm -hmm. stars of the scenes. And you know, and with they live, I I don't think this, I, I don't, you know, satire and commentary on, on consumer culture. That's nothing new, but boy, do they just, how it being sledgehammered so hard in your face from the beginning. I don't, I don't think a lot of movies had really done that before.
1: No, no, no. The presentation on the on They Live of, of the commentary that they're trying to make is like none other whatsoever. It's absolutely like a completely once in a million type kind of presentation to that to that commentary. And like I really like what you said about this thing and like living in the gore and like being with the creature and stuff like that. And the effects work were 100 percent the stars of those scenes. Like take even the point in time where the dog goes into the room with the yep. other dogs like you are you are experiencing the, that shape-shifting stuff. And one of my earlier notes, which actually did not make it into um, into the what I typed up for the outline, is that when it came to like shape-shifting stuff prior to the thing, and like I, I could be wrong on this, but this is just like the impression that I get, is that shape-shifting stuff was like very, very quick. Or it was like, you know, a guy goes into a room followed by the shape-shifter and only the shape-shifter walks out, implying that the shape-shifter is now that mm-hmm, guy. Mm-hmm. You are never with the transformation for that much time period. You know what I'm saying? Like you got that scene with the dog, that creature was probably like six or seven different creatures in that one scene alone. And then to, when it, carries into the rest of the movie and stuff like that like it is just such creative use of this that is supposed to be one thing but it like affects like every single person like differently and stuff so it's like in all reality many things and you don't get that at all like even like with with movies today and stuff like that you'd have a lot of crazy fast cutting a lot of like reaction shots and stuff like that you would never live with the transformation the way you do in the
0: thing i I really think that because the thing from Another World, uh, the movie that it's it's the Howard Hawks movie that's it's paying homage to, I don't think that's a shapeshifting alien. I think it's more straightforward.
1: Right, I could it's be a-
0: wrong, but it's more just a straightforward alien. Um, I don't think, uh, just in terms of like in terms of this type of like creature, I don't think we really had anything like this at all pri- previously.
1: There's nothing that I can think. There's certain. Glimpses of imagery that I'm having from the 1980s, but I don't think that it was early enough. Um, early enough in the 80s to 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 be like a, a giant creature or whatever. Right. So I'm pretty sure that this had to be one of the first, like, at least where it was really, really, really good. A use of the uh, the transformation creature and stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I'm like I'm trying to I'm trying to, I know there's some movies from the 70s that had like you know they had like like invasion of the body snatchers type stuff, but nothing. Yeah so gruesome and visceral and like you know like we didn't like it in some of those movies even some of the there's even some like um remakes of like the invasion of the body snatchers that came out in the 80s um i think like invaders from mars is one of them i know there's another one um we didn't like see how it worked mm-hmm. right. just that it just that it worked just that they did that they, what they did is they took bodies and clone does or they took over but whatever it was there was no scene where a whole mass of writhing uh organic matter was was trying to take the shape of something it was it was touching
1: that's right yeah it was nothing like that at all it was like implied transformations and stuff like that really crafty camera work to let the audience right. know what's going on right but the audience was never living the experience Right. exactly
0: all right so <clears throat> from each of these movies Chema, i want you to give me these three things here I want you to give me something that has influenced other movies, a unique John Carpenter touch, and just something that stuck with you after after you've seen it. Um, if you've seen it, I'm assuming you've seen all these, correct? Y- yes, yeah. I have. Okay, yeah, just making sure. I mean, if you didn't, fine, but yeah, and something that stuck with you, you know, from all these movies after you saw it. So um, let's just let's just kind of start in the order that they go through. Let's just start uh, with the on Precinct 13. Something that uh, from this movie that influenced other movies going forward.
1: Okay, so with this, um, I went with like this. This kind of like intense, intense action and the really living in the moment of like the siege and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like um, now, it, it might not necessarily be for an entire movie, but um, when there are many, many examples of elongated siege sequences and movies and stuff like that that get really detailed and get really 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 into the action and stuff where you see like all the inner workings it's not like the guys show up and then 10 minutes later there's a gun fight or whatever and the, the guys walk out of the building in the end mm-hmm. but you actually see like really, really developed drama drama tension between the people on the inside and the, the circumstances on the outside. So that is one thing from assault on precinct 13 that I think carried over into movies and will continue f- till the end of time.
0: Yeah. I had, I had something very similar. We're, we're hitting on the same thing here. I, I called it the bottle action movie, um, where the, you know, like a, like a bottle episode of TV takes place in one, in one location. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't recall there being very many bottle action movies before this. And we are stuck in this precinct for basically the entirety of this movie. And you're right, you get to see the inner workings. Everything is taking place in the one location, and you're just stuck with it there. And since this movie, this has been something that has been referenced in TV shows and other movies. Uh, I one of my, A show that I will not stop talking about on this podcast for as long as we do this. Um, Banshee did their version of Assault on Precinct 13 which Mm -hmm. is an actual assault on a police precinct. And it's fucking incredible. It is maybe the best homage to this. It's better than the assault on precinct 13 from several years ago. Um, It might be the best version of this. Okay. But again, like other action movies have, have, you know, taken this formula of like, we're stuck in one place and we're going to be here for the next, you know, hour and 40 minutes.
1: Yeah, and telling you, the more and more you keep talking about this and the more and more I'm watching Anthony Starr on the boys, like I just need to get like the Cinemax streaming service for at least like a week or something like that to binge it really quick because this show just sounds fucking incredible. It's fucking
0: nuts, dude. This show, it's it is it is watching your it's, you're like watching a really polished um nineteen eighties slash nineties canon action movie.
1: Yeah, and you can't dude in my mind you cannot go wrong with that. i fucking love those that time period in the film. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right uh, how about uh, how about uh, something from Halloween that has influenced other movies?
1: okay so this one pretty easy yeah. the whole concept of the modern slasher and the um, muted unstoppable unkillable force and everything like that I mean it's it, it was going on back then it's going on now it doesn't show any signs of leaving anytime soon so the Halloween definitely opened up the doors for what we know as the modern slasher flick
0: yeah I, I, I'm with you here um, I kind of I phrased it as we're, we're looking at uh, the beginning of the obviously the suburban slashers suburban paranoia that would permeate especially through the 80s um you know with these with these types of movies horror, really horror movies in general but um this is this is the, the the beginning point for it that still permeates even like things like comedies and shit today that you know mm-hmm. really can can harken back to uh the suburban slasher the suburban paranoia that that halloween seeded
1: yeah d- i can definitely see that yeah you bet
0: um escape from new york uh something else here Uh, go for it
1: okay so i used this term earlier in the episode and um it's kind of like an adam chemilewski personal term i i don't believe that this exists but um escape from la started what i call industrial complex science fiction and this is kind of like um i guess to best explain what i think that the genre is it's kind of like taking um, either commentary from the world or even like the body politic and kind of personifying that through the setting, mm-hmm, th- mm-hmm. giving it to life through a course of a setting. And yeah. this particular setting, why the industrial complex part is because with Escape from New York, it serves into the prison industrial complex. and um, And these, basically these kind of movies that are, i don't know like taking these like massive industries almost and kind of personifying them in a setting and, and all these other kind of like hidden things that come with the um the prison industrial complex and stuff and like uh, to, to give you like kind of another example like alien 3 i think kind of fringes into this whole like genre sure. too and it just mesh well with like with like the prison um and concept of like the jail and stuff like that to on a similar plane as like Escape from New York, but um, any kind of movie that does have like some kind of big like governing thing or some kind of motif of governing and in the industrial complex, I guess, is like this is kind of like what I consider to be the start of this kind of science fiction.
0: Yeah, I I, I would agree with you there. You know, in, in a weird way, it um, Escape from New York is reminds me. Of Snowpiercer
1: I gotcha I gotcha dude That's
0: sort of The same idea That like this That uh, There are The forces that are Controlling everything And making everything happen Are just gigantic Like they're They're so omnipresent That they're Like you don't even realize That they're there
1: that's a, that's an even better way to describe it. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And Snowpiercer like, yeah, Snowpiercer is making a lot of statements on things too and classism and all that stuff is in, almost in the same way that escape from New York is making these statements about like society and mm-hmm.
0: everything. Yeah. Um, I like that. I, I, here's what I really loved about escape from New York. This is at least as far as I can remember. I, and I'm not, I, again, granted this movie came up before either of us were born, but I, in this, all the movies that I've watched prior to this movie, I don't remember a movie that was filled exclusively with anti-heroes and villains.
1: No, actually, no. Um, Cause a lot of, pretty much every, the formula for pretty much every movie and even like some of the movies that were noari or more mm-hmm. gritty and stuff like that prior to always seem to have like one completely innocent character, right. you know, somebody that was like completely pure and, with escape from New York, like everybody was pretty much a prisoner, and then there's the cab driver who decided right. to stick behind. So, and
0: you you maybe you can't even like you know obviously Snake Plissken is the antihero, but like even the president, who is the you know the innocent person in this, is clearly not an innocent person.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yes, nobody, no one in the whole movie is innocent, not at all.
0: Yeah. So just the, it, it, I mean, I'm sure it's not the first one like that, but it's the only one I can think of that is so out front with that snake Pliskin is a bad guy, but these other guys are bad guys too. So let's just watch them fight each other.
1: Yeah. I, like you're, you're probably right. I mean, there, there could easily be another example, but like, I'm telling you, like in whatever, like, film classes i took in college and like your basic like you know film history 101s they never ever cover a movie that was the first movie of anti-heroes or anything like that mm-hmm. so for, for all i you could easily have been right when this is like one of the first if not the first movies to ever do something yeah. like that uh
0: how about the thing
1: okay so the thing like we talked about hateful eight before um like i said the hateful eight is definitely a western version of the thing and with some of the themes that um carried out in the thing that transcended into other movies. You do have, um, the, the, the isolation thing remote, like very, very remote and secluded kind of like, um, horror, like this own like little, like kind of community that's off in the middle of nowhere. That's basically inaccessible mm-hmm. by, um, with ease you can't just drive to it or whatever you can't even really fly to it um there's also themes of like paranoia uh d- distrust between characters this kind of almost almost like a quasi who done it kind of thing mm-hmm. like amongst the cast and everything trying to figure out who the um who the person is, who, who done it or whatever. So, um, there is, so those would be some of the things that I think from the thing that carry on into other movies, aside from like some of the obvious stuff, like just, you know, big creatures yeah. and everything. Yeah. You, you,
0: you're, you, you hit on, I, I kind of, you hit on something that I was going to go with like a, an, kind of an overarching idea. Um, that as far as I know, this is like our first potboiler horror movie. Um, usually pot-boiler movies are like mysteries, who done it's, you know, mm-hmm. who killed the person, like, you know, uh, we have all the, like, Clue. We have all the yeah. people in the house. we got to figure out who did it. Um, You know, and, like, you can go through, you know, it's the, Pot Boilers are one of your oldest types of movies, right? I don't recall there being a Pot Boiler horror movie where we're all sitting in the same room, essentially, with the thing that is killing everyone, with this horrible creature, and we have to figure mm-hmm. out, we have to go back through step-by-step step to figure out who had contact, where they were, and where they've been. I mean, it's it's a who done it with a giant fucking alien,
1: yeah. um, I don't I can't think of anything like that either. Like basically, like you're right. Everything is clue where it's like, you know, people in the room and a party in the mm-hmm. house and all that stuff. But it was I can't think of anything where it was like an extraterrestrial or supernatural life force that everybody was trying to figure out who who it was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you could be you could be 100% right on that. Like I'm not even going to pretend to contest that cuz like I I'm not thinking of anything off the top of my head that is like a, the pot boiler um horror movie.
0: But but since then we've had we've had more of them. I mean they're there there is this concept where we kind of don't we don't get introduced to the creature or the villain until later on. That is something that we definitely see a lot now.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of like some I I know like The formula that you're saying totally feels right. I'm just having difficulty pinpointing what that might actually be. Like a like a good reference. I'm um, looking some
0: up right now for you. Let me. I mean, like, always fun listening to just Google.
1: Maybe hereditary to a certain degree because you're kind of not really knowing what's going on until midway through the movie and stuff like that. It's mostly like yeah. But I don't know But I even think that That might even be A bad example Because I think Somewhere in the beginning You're at least introduced To the idea Of what is going on
0: There's I know there's a, There's a recent M. Night Shyamalan movie Where they're all Trapped in an elevator Oh yeah I think yeah, it's just yeah, called yeah.
1: Devil Yep
0: it is yeah Um, And there's another one Um, there's a, there's a couple of I know I have some Asian movies in my head Right now Where like We don't find out That the The supernatural pro, You know The supernatural killer Is like one of the people involved, in, like the investigation, I probably should have looked this up before before I brought this point up. But like, I yeah, that that Devil movie reminds me of this. Um, and there's, I know there's something else too. Yeah, I mean, like,
1: maybe like the usual suspects,
0: like where you find out the
1: guys Kaiser at the end or whatever. But I yeah, I'm really drawing a blank on that. But the but what you're saying feels right to me.
0: Uh, I, identity um, from the early 2000s. That's one of them.
1: Oh God! Who is in that?
0: Um, it's a lot of people, but it, it's basically it's ten little Indians, but it's playing out inside someone's psyche.
1: Oh yeah, I know what this movie is. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I know what it is. Yeah. Yep, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh,
0: and how about uh, how about for they live?
1: Okay, so would they live the um, basically like the the commentary on the capitalism and everything like that? Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, let me see here. I did have this whole thing written down, which I'm trying to scroll to now. I'm sorry. My uh, Gmail like kind of needed to refresh on me. So, okay. Yeah. So basically you're talking about the, uh, we're looking at the, the idea of the capitalism and everything like that and how they produce that or how they present that commentary. Um, and, uh, Jesus fucking Christ, why can I not find this on my thing here? Okay. Yeah. Just, um, and just the exploitation of, of that or whatever. I didn't really have too much with the, um, they live, but the whole idea of the, uh, capitalism and the consumerism and the exploitation of human beings in this whole like grand scheme would be something that is definitely apparent in in movies going forward.
0: Yeah. It's same thing here. It's the, it's the, I call the the consumer culture, horror satires, um, you know, between uh, most recently, uh, something like velvet buzzsaw, Mm-hmm. Um, is not quite a consumer culture, but it's a culture satire that happens yes. to be a really violent horror movie. Um, a movie that I've talked about in a, in a, in a mini-sode, uh, called Society, uh, from like 1988 or 87, I believe, um, okay. is, I, no, it's gotta be after this. I think it's 80, I remember the same year, 88, uh, there's a movie called The Stuff, but like, yeah, th- like this is sort of like your, this is sort of like your, um, It's not the first one, but this is sort of like the this is the the thing that gets referenced the most Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the consumer culture horror uh, consumer culture horror satires. They Live is like the first one that people think of.
1: Would you consider uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead to be one of these as well?
0: Oh, Dawn of the Dead, the original and that one are okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: Okay. Cool. Definitely.
0: Um, So we're gonna move on here to a unique Carpenter touch. Um, how about this one, Chema? You just pick where we start. Doesn't matter.
1: Okay, so I'm, I'll just go right on down the list. Okay, we'll start at uh, assault and. Um... This one, uh, I do have the uh, the real the realism, the grittiness of it, and stuff like that. Using the handheld cameras and everything, mm-hmm. taking the audience into the um, into the action, into the situation, and everything, having us live these experiences with the characters, that is by far and away what I feel is the a very unique carpentry touch with uh, assault.
0: I, I I agree with you that wholeheartedly, and then to add to that, there's this thing that he does in assault. Um, I believe in Christine, and I want to say one of the later. Well, um, they live. This sort of we get this sort of like um, not a distant shot, but a wide shot of either the heroes or villains kind of arming up, getting ready to go to combat, and like mm-hmm. they like walk towards screen, like they walk towards the camera.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and gotcha. This
0: yeah. shot that I just distinctly remember from precinct, from Christine, they live, and I feel like I know there's another one like that, where there's like a gang of like a few people, um, moving towards like their target, basically. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I know what you're talking about, dude. Yeah. Yeah, Like that's kind of like a, um, it's almost kind of like a, it's a shot that I think other people have like replicated since.
0: It's, it, it, you you know, it's a shot that in, I, I, it's a shot that you see in, um, Westerns with the cowboy, you know, walking towards and looking heroic, but in, in Carpenter's movies, it's a lot of times villains, Mm-hmm. Uh, walking towards the camera with the same sort of low angle wide shot that makes him look heroic
1: yeah they kind of like they walk by the camera there's so many shots of Michael Myers in Halloween kind of doing a similar yep. thing where he's like you know walking up to the house and you actually see him exit the shots and everything yep. like that you know one consistent motion mm-hmm. definitely uh,
0: How about uh, how about for Halloween then?
1: This one's the music it's, yes, this, yeah. by far and away. The music is one of the most John Carpenter things about that movie yep. easily.
0: <laughs> we, yeah. I'm with you there. We can go ahead and move on to the next one there. Uh, <laughs> Escape from New York.
1: Okay. So, um, I had with this one, um, you're definitely looking at the, uh, like I said, this, the idea of this like setting and everything like that, I think to be a very, very carpenter kind of feel, but also kind of giving it this like, I really like almost like diet kind of cyberpunky kind of look to the whole mm-hmm. like um to the movie and stuff like that and the way that the the costumes were and it does have this like it does have this grittiness to it but it has like this really cool like stylized grittiness to it which I really appreciated.
0: I I'm I'm with you on that one. Um, the stylized grittiness actually goes into something into the the sort of the the bleak setting, um, which is like a, a carpenter touch. A lot of these have bleak, bleak settings, but this is like the this is like the Carpenter unique touch trilogy trifecta. It's a bleak setting with a bleak story that has a bleak ending.
1: Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of fucking bleakness going on there. Yeah.
0: I mean, <laughs> right. escape from New York. is. I love that movie, but it is, it's bleak. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's not a, not something that like you, you walk away from feeling great about.
1: No, I, I, I understand what you're saying yeah. for
0: sure. Uh How about the, th- how about the thing?
1: Okay. So I think that, um, even though assault really, you know, milked the the, the trapping and all this stuff, mm-hmm. I think in the theme, the isolation and the feeling trapped and the, the feeling like you have no place else to go it seems like it's really amplified in all the right ways in the thing. I mean, even when you're talking about just like this remote location and they do a really, really great job of like making sure that there is no fucking chance in hell that these people are going to be saved. Like all the communications are cut Mm -hmm. off even for being in the middle of Antarctica, the the people like the Norwegians on the other side of the, of the Island or whatever, they're all gone. So he really, in this one does a great job of amping up the isolation and the feeling trapped.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It's, boy that, that is that's that's right there's a bottle action movie for you um yeah. but also something that i love that he does <clears throat> he gives you and this one more the, the thing more so than any other of his of his movies but he does it in the, his other movies as well the ambiguous ending you there yep
1: hold on sorry sorry there yeah, yeah, yeah. You bet. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. My, I um, clicked the wrong button on the, the oh, no computer. Problem. Been a long time. No but problem. yeah, I, I yeah, definitely yeah, the, understand. The, the
0: the ambiguous ending where it's just the, the, he and, he and uh, Kurt Ru- Kurt Russell and and Keith David just looking at each other like with this like resigned sort of fate that no it doesn't matter what happens they're dying there.
1: That's that's right, dude. Yeah, there was something like really, I guess. Um, Somber and, um, like accepting all at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like these, these two dudes who know that they're not going to make it. So might as well just split a bottle of scotch together and just enjoy the, the last like little bit of time you have. And in once again, that's something Tarantino totally, totally took for the end of the (laughs) end of the hateful eight. And even down to it being a Caucasian guy and an African American guy hanging out together, enjoying um, not a bottle of scotch, but a letter from Abraham Lincoln or fake letter from Abraham Lincoln.
0: Mm (laughs) oh yeah uh how about the uh, how about they live
1: okay so with this um the presentation of this whole other world that you see with the sunglasses mm-hmm. and the black and white and the really just fucking awesome images of like those skull aliens and stuff like that the skeletal aliens like that is something that is that is john carpenter 100 percent.
0: yeah uh, yeah I, I i'm agreeing with you on this one the way that you get there's just a unique way to get taken into the world um, that, mm-hmm. that is beneath our world um, is is right there. I agree with you that, and I'll, and I'll add to it. This is pitch black comedic satire. This movie is very funny. If oh yeah, you know what you're supposed to be laughing at, and the like the direness of everything that's happening. Like this movie is very funny
1: yeah without a doubt dude yeah and like there are some times where like i think it's un- even like unintentionally unintentional, funny yeah. for for some of this stuff yeah i mean it's <laughs> yeah sorry go ahead oh i was just gonna say i'm really looking forward to getting down into this movie a little bit more in depth in uh in a couple weeks yeah
0: absolutely and and, and a lot of it a lot of the unintentional comedy comes from the fact that like hey it's rowdy Roddy piper's like first real movie
1: yeah that's right
0: i know the, the, the late great but, rowdy Roddy piper in his first movie he did a great job i mean like he's exactly what that what this he is exactly what this particular role needed. Someone who was an outsider himself. Mm-hmm. definitely. yes, of course. And uh, now how about uh, as we get down here to this, this bit here, something that stuck with you after after you saw it?
1: okay, and go so- go ahead
0: just go down the list with the salt first.
1: Okay, so with Assault, it's definitely like the um, the brutality for such an early movie and stuff like that, and like the the violence and everything like that is something that even like for just watching it yesterday, I can still see a lot of those images. So, mm. the just I guess like the use of violence for such an early part of time in history is something that sticks with me for sure.
0: I absolutely, and still I haven't seen this movie in a few years now. Um, I, I, I'm definitely due for a rewatch, um, but. Chemba this is a horror movie um it just so happens that it's a biker gang and there's guns and shit but this is a horror movie this is like a this is like cabin in the woods almost this is a horror mm-hmm. movie and yeah oh, definitely and, and like obviously this you know obviously we're talking about one of the horror masters but like you know one of his earliest films is this movie that is i mean it's definitely a horror movie even though it's not and but you can see how this particular movie informs all the rest of his horror
1: mm-hmm yeah, dude, I, I'm understanding 100% what you're saying here yeah. for sure. Yeah, this is really just like, just the in-your-face element of it, taking the audience into the situation and stuff, and like getting the audience into this world and not leaving this world for mm-hmm. sure.
0: Uh, how about for Halloween?
1: Okay, like honestly, dude, uh, like I'd mentioned it before, but the the image of the of Michael Myers as the kid and like when his parents caught him, mm-hmm. that that fucking just the shot of the kid with the knife, like it, it's ingrained in my mind. And then even kind of going a, a little bit farther into the movie just by about 10 or 15 minutes where it's just this kid sitting in a chair looking out into the world. You know, this like this really haunting image that has almost nothing haunting about it. It's just a kid looking out at the window, but he does it so fucking well. You know, and just these scenes and kind of letting people know that there's definitely something wrong with Michael Myers, like, early on in the movie. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, the Halloween is one of the earlier examples of like the fucked up kid movies th- th- that I've seen, you know, yeah. where, like a, a yeah. kid does some nuts. And I know that like around this time, like at least like at the time I saw it, it was the nineties. So like we had had like the good son and we'd had other movies like that were similar with the messed up kids. But this was yep. like one of the first ones that I saw. And I guess like when you are a kid and you're watching like a, just a twisted and deranged kid, it kind of scares you because like, it just makes you wonder, like you know, which one of your friends is that. You don't really see kids like Michael Myers, so it's just something about it that really stuck with me.
0: Yeah, no, I got you. I I I, I feel you on that, um, and it does help that it's placed in 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 the suburbs, so it could be any one of us.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Oh could yeah, could be any one of us.
0: Uh, mine's a little bit more straightforward here, and it's 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 because of the you know it's because of this movie, and really, really what more more informs it. Are all the horror movies, especially the slashers, that I've seen since um, I first saw Halloween, and how like you know how well I remember Halloween? Chema, there is no competition. Jamie Lee Curtis is America's all-time scream queen. Oh yeah, dude. There is no one else that is that can. There is no one else that can play this particular role the same way that she does it. That she is for all the other great things that she's done in her career, she is Laurie Strode, and that is how I'll always think of her
1: yeah i'm telling you like she does a really great job of being like the kind of like the calm like reserved nerdy girl and stuff like that in the beginning of the movie you know she's got a crush on this guy you know and even when she finds out that he wants to meet her she's still a little nervous and then it's a it's a complete 180 and when the survival uh, elements start to kick in you really get like a a taste of like jamie lee's range and Mm -hmm. stuff like that
0: yeah she's fantastic um escape from new york
1: okay so like a lot of the things that stick with me from escape it's it's pretty much like the like the plot overall in general like i think is absolutely genius um and there is just like certain images of like 1980s new york that are sticking out in my mind because new york is a completely different city um today than what it is like even just the world trade center alone like that image is still like kind of haunting to me to see the world trade center standing even in a movie from 20 years ago or 40 years ago whatever when it was actually standing Mm
0: -hmm. yeah no you're right on that um although most of most of most of the movie was shot in east st louis
1: Yes, I know that. I which do is, know that.
0: which makes sense because East St. Louis is a burned-out husk of of St. Yeah. Louis farther to the west.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely, I totally get what you're saying on that. It's just there's like no, there's I know you're saying the, the shots of the skyline. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally, dude. Yeah, I cool. know you're saying
0: that. So. <laughs> cool. um, you know, for Escape from New York, this is like this is something that like I realized as 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 I as I began to consume more and more media. Um, you know, between movies, TV shows, even video games, this is actually the key here: that um, Snake Plissken really sets a new archetype for action heroes. That mm-hmm. they don't have to be all all heroic and all perfect. You know, they don't have to be the you know the, the classic action hero that we picture. Um, right. That they can have faults and flaws, and some in a particular cases, you know, they could be villains too. By the way. Um, in fact, like this, uh, Snake Pliskin is the um, is the direct model for one of the most successful video games of all time, uh, the Solid Snake video games, the Metal Gear Solid video games. Um, the code the code name of the character you play is Solid Snake, and his named hmm. directly after Snake Pliskin. He looks like him, um, moves around like him. He's you know he's an antihero like like Snake Pliskin. Um, that that type of hero is something that would. Um, you know obviously it's it's unique we talked about it like the, I talked about the importance of it before but like as I've consumed more media I'm like oh this is this is fine because of this movie
1: right oh dude definitely like he that does send a tone for like the, the anti-hero protagonist and stuff and if I'm not mistaken like he um his character in the movie had like killed somebody or something like that there was uh, some he, was, kind of... he
0: was trying to rob the Federal Reserve and like it, like botched robbery people killed all kinds of stuff
1: That's right. That is right. Yes, you bet. So like even just taking the idea of this dude who like robbed a bank and not only making him like cool but also Mm -hmm. like the guy that you're rooting for that definitely does set like some kind of precedent for giving heroes a little bit of dimension in the future it wasn't all going to be like john wayne and the guy who's just chopping wood on the farm
0: who gets that call to action like at some
1: point in time the hero would have had to evolve to become
0: deeper and 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 you know and obviously there have been like the dirty dozen right like that's one of your like anti-hero kind of early anti-hero movies Mm -hmm. um with you know 12 anti-heroes basically but they're working for redemption. In Escape from New York, Snake Plissken isn't working for anything. He doesn't fucking care. Like, right. He, he could tell you right now, like, I don't really care if the, you know, the only thing he's working for is survival. It's not about being redeemed and, you know, being welcomed back into society. Yeah,
1: I gotcha. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, he's, yeah, definitely.
0: Uh, how about the thing?
1: Okay, so the thing, the thing that definitely uh, stuck out for me was, um, just the images of the creature. And I'm not going to lie. The, you said it before when the guy puts his hands on the stomach and it becomes Audrey too, and just collapses yep. on him, <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: It's, it's just such a cool and creative, I, I think an idea. And like, it just with this whole like idea of the creature and how many versions of it that we got, like the images of the, the creature is something that's going to stick with me forever.
0: Yeah, for sure. The, the images of the creature, the gruesomeness of how it, you know, goes about co-opting, um, you know, our DNA, and this all goes back to the fact that, like, Chim, I've seen this movie recently. The effects work still holds up. Like, mm-hmm. it's obvious. You know, it's not. It, it's not perfect looking, but like I've seen movies do things with with digital effects that still don't look quite as interesting, and quite as fun as the practical effects work in this movie
1: oh dude i know what you're talking about and like if you when you go back to some of like the earlier days of like um maybe even like putting clay into live action and stuff or like even like the way goro looked in mortal kombat which is like you know years after the fact Mm -hmm. the the creature work in the scene or in the thing is just way more intricate and way more like just way more on point than what we even had in goro which came out 10 years later
0: yep yep uh how about they live
1: Okay, so, like, honestly, like, the image of just, like, the, um, the skeleton holding, like, the, the, um, the skeletons and, like, the black and white and the imagery of all the different, like, all the different sayings and stuff like that and the billboards and stuff and just the points in time when, like, um, you know, Piper puts the glasses on and, like, the entire world is shifted where all of the things they consume and obey and all that and Mm -hmm. even more recently, like, the, Ivanka Trump Goya picture that somebody turned into a they-live alien. (laughs) Yes. Like, it's just, that's just, that's just like, I don't know, that is just a statement of like the longevity of that movie.
0: Yeah, yep, exactly. Um, Chema, I think, and I think the reason why this has such longevity, besides like the iconic imagery, um, which is just, it's outstanding, but the simplicity of this idea and how supremely executed it is. This is mm-hmm. this is a very basic setup for a movie. Like when we talk about when you talk about The Fog, how, you know, that's like scriptwriting 101. It's a very basic setup, but it's executed so well. This movie's pretty straightforward in what it's what it's trying to say and what it's doing, but it's executed to perfection. So, yeah. it doesn't need to be any more than what it is. It's it's perfect. No,
1: definitely, dude. It is one of these kind of movies that um like everything is there. Everything that they need is there. There's not any more. There's not any less. And it all kind of works.
0: Yep. This, if someone made this movie currently, it would be very bloated. And it would, oh, it, would, yeah. it would drag at various points. Whereas John Carpenter managed to get his point across about consumer culture and yuppieism and everything else. And, you know, advertising. He managed to get it across in, was it like an hour and 40 minutes? Mm-hmm. There's no way yeah. this movie would be under two and a half hours now.
1: No, not at all. And it would be filled with all kinds of like um, real on the nose and in your face and aggressive metaphors and stuff like that. It wouldn't be any of the like the subtle genius of just like every magazine cover saying consume, obey, all that kind of stuff. Like it would be really in your face. Uh,
0: How about uh, how about any commonalities that you found with these movies? Um, This is, you know, might be a little bit harder to find since they're they're stretched out over a little bit more longer period of time than uh, you know some of the other ones.
1: Okay so um I did like I, we have a lot of like the rise of the anti-hero here and this is mm-hmm. a lot of commonality in that regard um even so much with with Roddy Piper like it's he's a little bit more of like a diet anti-hero in comparison yeah. to Pliskin it's just kind of like a guy who got thrown into the mix almost like one of those um reluctant type heroes yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely like, he's a non traditional like protagonist and stuff like that, which runs rampant in this, even like, like Dr. Loomis, for example, like that is a, whether you call him the protagonist of Halloween is something that could be debated, but, um, like even him being like a little bit off kilter, him not being entirely pure and everything like that. There's, um, there's definitely, there's definitely these elements. Um, there's also just this whole, like, um, kind of like just being trapped element in in all these movies Mm -hmm. too where like if it's laurie strode being trapped in the closet or even roddy piper being trapped in this world or whatever there's Mm -hmm. there's just something a level of being trapped and not having at least for one point in time feeling like no one is going to escape this situation
0: I, i i think that might be the seminal one of the seminal connections between all of his movies
1: of course, it, this, of this course.
0: idea of being trapped. Um, even you could even apply it to like the invisible memoirs of an Invisible Man. He is trapped in a situation not of his own making, um, mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, the, you know, he's got to hide and do all that kind of stuff. You could even um, you could even make the claim that Christine, I, I can't remember the boy's name, that she that she begins to sort of take over. That he's trapped with her. Yeah, of course. That's yeah. right.
1: Yes, in some way, shape, or form, somebody is trapped in the Prince of Darkness. They're trapped in the church, yep. but the people are trapped by the devil's uh, curse or whatever and yeah. stuff like that. So there's a lot of trapping.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. Um, I'll I'll add to it. Um, it well, actually, you, you I mean, you really got it. you really hit everything that I was going to talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> other than like, I can just add like they're all fucking great. Uh, these this, this particular set of movies, um, yeah. they're all great. They're all as we said before. They are they're all sort of in even though some of these are homages and remakes, they're still an origin, there's still managed to spin a lot of originality inside of their homage or their, or, you know, the remake, um, mm. which is just fascinating. Um, and obviously, which to, to talk about Carpenter's later films, uh, those, you know, the remakes and the homages had spun almost no originality in them. Um, you know, which, which obviously is something that he was, was good at at one point in time. Um, but also, and you, you brought it up, like, these these ones, in addition to being trapped, these later, these Pantheon films of his are significantly more contained. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, like, the story is very uh, point A to point B. Like, there's not a lot of diversion anywhere anywhere else. You're going from this to this to this, and that's it.
1: Yeah, there's minimal subplots. Like I I think minimal subplots. And I'm like I could barely include like Laurie Strode having a crush on a guy like as a subplot, right. you know, but these worlds are so focused. They're so direct to where they are. Like I mean, once you're in Heddenfield, Illinois, like the farthest you go is to the sanitarium in Warren County, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. there's not any diversion. There's not even there's not even like the um the like the guy who they build up in the beginning of the movie that becomes like, or that eventually winds up in town in the middle of the movie. There's none of that kind of right. stuff. Everything is, it's there.
0: This is, and this is, I mean, I think that's more of a feature. I mean, it, you know, it's a carpenter feature, but I think it's also just more of a feature in general for older movies and older, older screenwriters, because they're like all, like if, if carpenter existed now, he was our age or, you know, maybe 40 or something writing these movies. Just from the way that movies are made and written now, they would all these movies would be over two and a half hours long. Every single of one of them. And none of these, I think I wanna say Starman and I, I you know, I looked up all the times on these. There's only like two of them that are over that are like bordering on two hours.
1: Yeah, I know out of all the out of all like the, the more horror y stuff, you're looking at an hour and forty tops. Yeah. Assault like, and Precinct like,
0: 13 is like an hour and like 22 minutes
1: or something yeah dude it was so short man i was like I, I watched it i started it like a little after 11 last night and it was over by 12:20. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I mean i was like holy shit like and but that's the thing like i have no problem with like the shorter movies and not stuff like all. that I, I really do not i i don't understand like why everybody feels that like like judd apatow feels a comedy needs to be two hours and 45 minutes i just don't are. get it I have no idea man I've it's never nuts. quite figured that out and if you can't make like a statement in 90 minutes like I, I don't know I mean especially like in horror and in comedy like if you can't do 90 minutes of that like I just I, I don't know what the hell you're doing
0: I believe me I'm I am fully on board I remember like when we when we did our, our it review we did it chapter two mm-hmm. I swear to God like an entire day passed when I was in there watching that fucking movie oh I know I, I went in and it was like it was you know it was nighttime but it was, like, kind of nice and, like, breezy out. When I came out, it was pouring rain and shitty. I'm like, how long was I in here? Like, is it right. tomorrow?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. The same thing happened to me when I saw, like, a Endgame and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, which which I know needed to be long. But, my God, I, I got out of the, I went in there at, like, 8.30 in the morning. And when I came out of the theater, like, the sh- the mall that I saw it in was, like, a completely different place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, uh, let's get this back to this last question here. So what is your favorite of this group? You know, and why is it important to you? And, and why do you think it's like important to pop culture at large?
1: Okay, so my favorite, it's no joke, dude, it's the Halloween's out of this. yeah, And, for sure. and it's not like, for me, this has nothing to do with filmmaking or stories or anything like that that this is like an entirely a personal thing and like uh just to knock it out really quick like it's obvious like the, the the contributions and stuff like that with the slasher and everything we've been over that a thousand times this episode so like i don't have a lot of whole new ground to to crack in, into into that regard but it's pop culture contributions are definitely the slasher uh, really just fucking even the persona of michael myers and kind of putting him on pins or even in like kind of humorous, stupid cards that you would send to people where it's Michael Myers crying over his cat or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like just the idea of this non-speaking and extremely like violent persona of Michael Myers that could be just juxtaposed in different ways for humor or whatever it is in pop culture. But um, for me personally, Uh, I saw this movie in the early 90s, and it was this movie that I saw with one of my mom's boyfriends at the time who happened to own a lot of the John Carpenter VHSs, which is how I saw a lot of these movies when I was a kid and Mm -hmm. everything. And um, of course, this guy who turned out to be a complete fucking psycho, total douchebag piece of shit, but that's a whole other story. And the (laughs) one pleasant the one pleasant memory that I do have from this asshole was like sitting around this one like weekday night watching Halloween and like actually like this was like scary. Like this was like the first like, you know, I might not go in the garage after seeing a type movie and everything. And I'd seen horror movies before, you know, but this was like the first one that really like instilled like actual like fear in me. And then from there, um, the movie kind of took on a whole new life, like amongst like my circle of friends and stuff like that that I had when I was a kid. And I can remember even even as early as like '95 or '96, like it was me, Wheeler, and Jason Wood just hanging out watching scary movies, like in a TNT marathon, or we rented them from the old Summit Video that used to be next door to Stan's Bakery and mm-hmm. stuff on, uh, on on old Rod 8 and everything. So there's this. I guess just like this, it's just like this piece of me that has been around for so long. And like, there are even times where I look back and even like more recent memories. And when I say more recent, I mean like, you know, from 98 plus where this was like this constant, like thread of conversation. And I remember when H2O came out and just all of us talking about it and different theories. And then we all went to the theater to like see it together. And just like that car ride home that you have when you're talking with your friends about the movie and, and, I swear, man, like every time that something new Halloween related comes around, Wheeler and Wood are always within a conversation within like the first week of us hearing about it, you know, and it's like, "Is it going to suck? Is it going to do this? And this is like this thing that's this movie and this franchise that's been like this sort of like background glue of these lifelong friendships that I've had is it's really like, it's just really, really like, you know, kind of like nostalgically encompassing I guess in so many ways and for that it um it remains my favorite slasher franchise of all time it it remains my one of my favorites not my favorite John Carpenter movie and it's something that um i'll go to the theater to see all the fucking remakes and all the shitty stuff and if it's not Buster Rhymes fighting Michael Myers maybe it'll be Vince Staples in a couple of years i had no idea <laughs> <Vince> I,
0: staples
1: <laughs> i know that would be a sight to see yeah, but, uh, but or like JPEG Mafia or something there like you that go, yeah. beating Michael Myers's ass but uh death grips both of them ganging up on Michael Myers D- death but, grips um,
0: with they're all wearing Michael Myers masks as they beat it, as oh. they go at him
1: of course dude of course and they're singing they're singing acapella um the uh, every no love, no love web deep like yep. its entire while beating his ass so like yeah i mean it's just it's a like a really like kind of special thing and some people like and i mean we, we had certain video games that held us together as kids and stuff and we've had certain like maybe sports or whatever mm-hmm. but this has kind of been this movie franchise that has done so much for this little group of friends from macedonia ohio it's it's just it's it kind of warms my heart i guess
0: <laughs> oh no i love it i'm not laughing at you for that it's just like the the thought <laughs> of like you guys like in your like golden years together mm-hmm. like hanging yep. out like one last time let's watch let's watch michael myers kill his sister
1: yep oh yeah dude. <laughs> we'll be doing Dude, we will be doing that shit. And like, our so our movies, like our big movies, were were the Halloween franchise, and then Freddy's Dead, like the final nightmare and stuff. Mm-hmm. My, I somehow like conned my mom into renting Freddy's Dead one night, and that was like the big night. Like we got my mom to rent us a rated R movie and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, it, it's still talked about to this day. Like it is it, those those are like our two things that have held us together all this time.
0: <laughs> Very nice. I love that. That's awesome. Um, so I am, you know, for me, I am going with they live as my okay. favorite out of this it was actually you gotta even surprise myself. Cause I'm such a big fan of the thing. Um, but I went with they live. Um, you know, we, I'll be brief about like the, the pop culture at large kind of stuff here, because we've talked enough about it. You know, it's, it's one of the best cultural commentaries of all time. Um, the message and the idea are simple. The execution is perfect. Um, you know, you, you, there's no, there's no like ambiguity as to what, John Carpenter and, and the character of uh, Nada, which is Roddy Roddy Piper, are trying to say about about uh, consumer culture. There's, there's no mistake about it. Um, you know, consumerism not that great. Yuppie culture not that great. Class warfare not that great. All of these right. things are are you know are were big time, especially as especially as yuppie culture and consumer culture and advertising culture grew big time in the '80s. Um, it was very you know it was, it was very relevant then. But all these things are still, especially the class warfare part, the consumerism parts. That those are still relevant today, and they're going to be mm-hmm. relevant going forward until, you know, until we figure out a way to stop our over overconsumption of products and things, and we have class equality. And you know, mm-hmm. I have a feeling we'll be dead before that happens. So those themes are going to be relevant forever. So it's 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 a great it's a great slice of commentary on it from the 1980s and how like we viewed it in the 1980s, but also. It's just timeless in that regard, plus, mm-hmm. and I'm glad you brought up. I'm glad you brought up the Ivanka Trump Goya beans thing because that popped in my head when I was thinking about this. the 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 iconic look of the aliens has now been in pop culture for thirty plus years, and that that look, even though I know people that have seen these like memes before with obey and with the alien heads and everything else, don't even know what movie it came from. Right, like they don't know where it came from, but it's still relevant. But and 50 years from now, that'll still be relevant. Even if people don't know where it came from. No, Um, exactly. It'll still be relevant. Um, And just to add, just from a movie, from a movie standpoint, the fight scene between Rowdy, Rowdy Piper and Keith David is one of the greatest fight scenes ever fucking filmed. It is violent and brutal. And it's them actually beating the shit out of each other. Um, Mm -hmm. This was something that they did. It wasn't like all in one take. They had to go fight each other repeatedly and they are actually punching each other. They're actually picking each other up and throwing each other on the ground. Um, not sure about the nut shots necessarily. I'm sure they had like a pad there. But um, <laughs> they're actually hitting each other in the, in the nuts. Um, biting, like all of this was a real fight. And this fight got parodied in South Park to perfection. And mm-hmm. this fight has been parodied, parodied a bunch of times in pop culture. It's... It literally, for a, for a movie that isn't a martial arts movie whatsoever, just happens to contain one of the greatest fight scenes ever filmed. Um, I know, isn't it nuts? <laughs> it's crazy, man. It's crazy. It, and just like, from like the personal side, like I remember, I think the first time I saw this movie, I was like 17 or 18, um, maybe maybe a little bit older, maybe I was, no, nah, because I was still, I wasn't in college yet, so I was like 17 or 18 when I first saw it, and it was like one of those times where I'm like, you know, like, like you said, like when you're in high school, you kind of have... Um, at least more of the ability to kind of like crit- critically look at movies as opposed, mm-hmm. as opposed to just like enjoying like the you know the explosions and everything else happening um, this was like one of the first movies that I looked at critically and it was kind of like like oh shit yeah like advertising's everywhere telling me what to do like there are things everywhere telling me what to do um, mm-hmm. even if it's sometimes it's overt sometimes it's not as overt but like you know like think about it. like we advertise two children to get to tell their parents to buy them things, like, isn't that just like a little bit fucked up? You know what I mean? Like, that's just a little yeah. bit fucked up that there are commercials tailored to figure out how how we can get kids to to buy our products. People who don't have money, how can we get them to buy our products? Um, and so that was like one of those things that like kind of like stuck out. Like, I really remember like critically analyzing this movie like when I was like seventeen or eighteen, and just like, man, that is kind of fucked up the way advertising works, um, yeah. the way this consumer culture works, and like how however present it is and how, like, we're okay with it. um, Like, you know, like, even in, like, in, like I can recall commercials that I like fondly. That's kind of fucked up. <laughs> like, that right. I enjoy a commercial. Like, it, it's it's strange, but that's, like, the world that we live in um, now and, and, and probably have, like, since, I, I don't know, since advertising became much more sophisticated and mainstream. You know, probably, really, even probably before the days of, like, the Mad Men, if you will. Yeah, um, of course. But... But it's all. This has also been one of those movies that I've like. I've noticed as time has gone on, how few people have actually seen it. Um, they might know some of the references and, and you know the way things look and stuff. But it was one of those movies that I loved keeping in my back pocket for conversation with people. That like you have to check this movie out because of this reason. Um, and it could be because of you know like you want to talk about class warfare and and the haves and the have nots. You know watch they live. You want to talk about advertising gone out of control. Watch they live. You want to, you know, whatever it is, you just want to see a good sci-fi movie that you don't, you know, if you don't want to focus too hard on on the messaging, it's still just a good sci-fi movie. Like, it's flat out just still a great sci-fi movie. Check it out. Um, You want to see a great fight scene? Check it out. Um, It's just one of those movies that I've kept in my back pocket for years, and I I distinctly remember, um, I know I've mentioned it before, that like when we were in college, uh, in one of the houses that we lived in, me and my roommates had Weird Movie Sunday, and like, one of us would just go to the, uh, it was called Video Spectrum. Um, like, an, I think it's still, I think it's still there, but it's a, it's a boutique actual video store that, like, it's curated and stuff. The people that run it actually care about what's in it, uh, which makes it fantastic. But, um, that was one of those, that was, like, like the first time that I got to, like, share it with, like, a big group of friends. And like to this day, like they still talk about like how much they love that movie and how much fun it was like to discover for the first time, you know, especially like in your 20s. Discovering it is probably a lot different than like even like even when I saw it, like when I was like 17 or 18. Um, So it was just like it's one of those movies that like I'll always, always just have in the back of my head. And it's kind of like mentally ready for me to like, hey, you like this? Here's this. Check this out. Mm -hmm. You'll love They Live if you've never heard of it before.
1: Yeah, dude, I understand what you're talking about, man, and, like, I did love having those movies in your back pocket when you were younger, like, those ones that you thought you and only, like, two or three people had seen and stuff, and, yeah, I miss, I kind of miss those days, <laughs> I really do.
0: Yeah, no, I know, it's it's harder, man, it, it, one one thing, it's harder and harder to get, because there's so many obscure movies that, like, pop up on streamers and other, like, out of, the, you know, out of the way channels and things like that, but, like, it, it, there's dude there's so many movies that just go by the wayside that I'm, i kind of hear about in passing and i just never get around to because i just don't you know i don't have the streaming service or i, I don't want to like find where it is on the dial if you will like it just it's just too far out of my out of, out of sight and mind
1: yeah of course definitely but
0: anyway uh that's that is the that is the last thing i have here Chama do you have any final thoughts uh, as we as we wrap up this particular podcast
1: other than i really enjoyed this and maybe with all the technical difficulties and everything like that i still think it turned out really really good and yeah i'm looking forward to um, diving into uh you know like christine and they live uh, coming up here in the uh upcoming weeks and um continue on with spooky season dude for sure
0: yeah i'm really excited uh yeah hopefully the technical li- it's really it's only a couple of parts and we rehashed most of it anyway so it's not that big, it really wasn't, it, it's not that big of a deal because I stopped it before it became a big deal.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, at least I tried to. So it's it, it's fine, like, we didn't, we didn't miss, we didn't miss two, it wasn't like you were, like, went into some grand point, and then, like, we couldn't get it back. So it, it's fine, but. Right. It, it always seems like, yeah, that's, what, this happens about twice a year?
1: something like that yeah Yeah, it's it's our bi-yearly occurrence yeah Yeah. (laughs)
0: just it just figures it's in like one of the most detailed episodes that we have to do i know always (laughs) all right but i don't have anything else other than that this is a lot of fun and i could i could continue talking john carpenter for another three hours um and not even remotely get bored of it um so i'll let you i'll let you wrap this up uh, with any final thoughts and just take us out of here
1: all right. Well, yes, definitely in the best interest of uh, not going on off the cuff for three more hours, we're going to call it a call it a day here with the uh, Occasionalist episode and our deep dive into John Carpenter and his work. And definitely stay tuned for the rest of this month as we continue to break down some of his movies, which we'll be doing here in the upcoming weeks. So for Adam Chmielewski and Matthew Pagel and the Occasionalist podcast, we will see you all next time. And everybody, thank you very much.